Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Please join me in a word of prayer. Your spirit of God is, uh, in fact, one that disturbs, one that interrupts the day-to-day operations of life. In a society where being in control at all times We're knowing exactly where we are going to be, when and how. Your spirit insists on interrupting. And so I ask that that interruptive spirit, that spirit that doesn't take into account the ways that we have devised to control you, O God, that spirit that insists on being heard and being known, cut through our own defenses, cut through our own conditioned responses, and do its work on us. And may you use the words I offer as a pathway, if they can be, as a contributor to interruption if they would be worthy. But fundamentally, don't let the words that come from this humble person get in the way of the work of transformation you have for us. Amen. The gospel according to Luke, or more accurately, the gospel that those who know about these things attributed to Luke, since we actually have no idea who wrote this gospel, uh, and it is presumed to have been written by someone on the second or third generation after Jesus, someone shaped by a Hellenized faith, please understand that word to mean Greek. Um, And someone with extensive knowledge about Judaism, about Jewish culture, practice, and sacred writing. The gospel according to Luke. Presbyterian biblical scholar John T. Carroll presumes that the writer is a Gentile, someone not born Jewish, not born into a Jewish family, someone who converted, one deeply knowledgeable of the ways that the community is currently at this time being impacted by all kinds of forces, primarily the incursion of Greek culture into the life of the community as a result of the Roman Empire and its occupation. This is a gospel concerned very specifically with how those who follow Jesus fit on a stream, a historical stream of the people known as Israel and their God. And while Luke, or who we call Luke, 
is really wanting to figure out where these people fit, Luke is also clear that there is a bigger story at work. Now, on this third Sunday of October, the Christian lectionary, that completely arbitrary construction of text that a bunch of people put together a long time ago to help people like me know what to preach about on a regular basis, the lectionary for today has us journeying through Luke. In fact, we are on the 18th chapter of this gospel, as you heard it read, and we find ourselves in a segment of the gospel that is filled with all kinds of contrasting stories and contradictions, all aimed at establishing a few key ideas about who Jesus is, about God, and about the kingdom of God that is being announced. It begins with the story of a widow and an unjust judge. It will move on to an exploration of prayer that we are going to talk about in a minute. It will invite us to consider uh, the hard choices that we must make uh, in exchange for access to the kingdom of God through a conversation with a rich ruler. It will confound us with yet one more announcement of what is going to happen to the Son of Man. And it would end in a healing on the road to Jerusalem. If you don't remember anything else about what I say today, remember this. That in this chapter of this gospel, we are reminded that God responds to those who insist that God meets us along the road. And that God will always heal and restore Now, today's gospel reading specifically, it's incredibly short, six verses, and it comes across when I hear it as a play, as a moral play, a morality play, with three key actors, Jesus, the storyteller, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. So now let us consider what we know about our three characters And let's uh, remember that this is a story being told as people are journeying to Jerusalem, which is where Jesus has been for about nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke at this point. So here is the first, let's think about the the characters. The first character is Jesus. Uh, It would be fair to call him Luke's Jesus as every Jesus that we encounter in the Bible is someone's memory of Jesus, as none of the Gospels were written when Jesus was actually alive. And so the Luke and Jesus has a history of using parables to convey super vivid and illustrative ways the key teachings and practices that he wants to distinguish uh, and that he wants to um, surface about his understanding of Jewish law and sacred writings. Luke's Jesus particularly cares a lot about reorderings of power, cares about about economic issues. It's particularly concerned with how the law ought to manifest in the current context, ought to speak to the contemporary issues that people are facing. Luke's Jesus um, is also uh, one that is not afraid to... uh, offer reversals that challenge people's preconceptions, right? He wants to recenter ideas of power, and he wants to highlight new people that should be centered, uh, and he wants to remind us which, of which kinds of faith we are to emulate. 
If you read along or before this chapter, you'll hear that he will lift up children or the widow or beggars, people sitting at the edge of the road as people we actually should be uh, emulating in our own faith formation and journey. The next character in the play is the Pharisee. Um, I heard you all laughing when the, it was being read because, I mean, let's be honest, uh, the Pharisee here is contemptuous, he is boastful, he is a look at me, I'm amazing kind of guy. Um, even their physical location, standing alone, center stage, speaks of their exceptionality. The prayer that the Pharisees pray and uses, the pretext of thanksgiving. Uh, and gratitude as a pathway to talk about how amazing they are in a public space. I pay my alms. I pray better than them, folks. Um, and it, he, the Pharisee is also saying, and I do all these things in every aspect of my life. The final character is the tax collector. Unlike the Pharisee, he is standing far off at the edge of the stage, an embodiment of repentance, of shame. This is not a character that is grateful or boastful. This is a prostrated being, turning inward, not quite believing that grace is possible, and asking for mercy. Their prayer is confessional. Then the play comes to an end. Jesus comes back into the view and says, in my plain English, don't be like the Pharisee, be like the tax collector. And scene, curtain down. Well, many have ended the sermon here. I mean, they may add a bunch of illustrations and stories and read some quotes that leave unchallenged the trust of the gospel at this point. And I would argue that to do that is to do a disservice to the text and to us. Because there are simply too, too many problematic layers in these six verses. And if we are to, as we are called, to engage the teachings of the scripture in their proper context, in the context of us today, then we have to do a little bit more digging. To aid us to aid us in that digging, I, I want to turn to the work of Dr. Lee Ann Bell. Dr. Lee Ann Bell was a professor of education at Bardner College, and she developed a methodology, uh, a dialogue framework, that teaches communities how to leverage storytelling in service of social justice. The aim of her framework is to assist communities like us better analyze and engage critical explorations of power, by assisting us to move past our presumptions, our assumptions, our biases, so that we can be effective at assessing what's the power dynamics that are among us, what's happening really beneath the surface. She wants us to become people who can resist. People can be the bearers of emerging and transformative stories, and in order to do that, she argues, then we have got to learn how to read stories, how to assess them. And she says, most of us are formed in two kinds of stories and have to learn 
to look at two and emulate two other kinds of stories. We, most of us, are conditioned by something she calls stocked stories. These are the tales uh, that those in power uh, will tell to uphold and justify their control. These are the stories that legitimize uh, all the ways that they behave, uh, how they believe, how they value, how they think, how they act as being the better way, the best ways, the ones that everyone else has to partake in. The second set of stories is what are called concealed stories. These are the stories that those in power don't actually want you to pay attention to. These are the stories that you created the stock stories to begin with. This is why you needed a stock story, because you needed to hide, you needed to prevent from surfacing exactly what is happening in the world. The third story are what they are called resistance stories. These are the stories that remind us that there is always a different path, there is always a third way, there is always a way in which we can, using cunning creativity, can in fact challenge both the stock sales and surface with a lot of integrity all of the things that need to be said, all the truths that need to be spoken. And finally, there are the emergent stories or the transforming stories. And these are the stories that are made possible, the stories that become available to us because having resisted, we can open our imagination. We can invite a new reality into existence. We can imagine a different way of being people in the world. So as I journeyed through our six verses, I thought to myself, well, what if Dr. Liam Bell were to look at the scripture? What would she teach us about it? So I'm going to try. Why not, right? So let's think about what are the stock stories. These are the dominant ideas that are presumed to be better that are held in the text. And what I want to think about is what are the stock stories we, the audience, carry into the play? What are the presumptions and assumptions we bring to the hearing of the story Jesus is telling? So let's go ahead and start with the Pharisees, right? Let's ask, what do we know? What is our stock story about them? So they are often portrayed as the antagonists of Jesus, intending to harm him, seeking to silence him, presented by the Gospels writers as legalistic, argumentative, inflexible, rigid, aligned with power and Rome, hungry for control, and, a, and holders of an incredibly narrow understanding of God and of what God sees as worthy. Now, let's turn our attention to the tax collector. Particularly in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, characters like the tax collector are presented in favorable ways. Uh, these are characters that are open to Jesus' message. They are welcoming. They are curious. They want to engage. They sit at table with Jesus. They follow. They go to ask for wisdom. They accept the challenges and the hospitality that Jesus offers. 
They're often not members of the Jewish community. Then there's, there's Jesus, right? Uh, in Christian lore, in our tradition of Christianity, Jesus' character is often lifted out of Judaism, often presumed to be antagonistic to the faith that he was, in fact, shaped in and born of. Uh, sometimes, when we are not careful, we may talk about Jesus as wanting to replace Judaism because of the anti-Semitism that does run through much of Christianity, particularly in the United States. We presume Jesus to want to usurp, replace rabbinical authority. Uh, we encounter a Jesus very convinced of his own narrative about who God is, about his own relationship to God, and a man highly opinionated about what people ought to do and how they ought to serve God. It is, uh, he is often presented as being extremely welcoming to the Gentiles. Come, sit, let us make table together. And he is also one that sees who's at the periphery and is rather intentional in bringing them in while being hypercritical of the people he comes from. So those are the stock stories we historically Christians carry into texts like this. So then we have to ask the question, what are they concealing? Like what lies beneath that made-up story? So why don't we go ahead and start with Jesus this time? So Jesus, uh, the extracted Jesus, has as a consequence uh, a couple of things. When we extract it from his Jewish context, we forget that Jesus was in fact not a Christian at all. He was never a Christian. He was always a Jew. He was a Jewish person highly invested in the reformation of his own faith. He was also uh, not trying to usher Christianity into the world at all. That will not happen until the Roman Empire decides this is a fairly good vehicle for control. It would be more accurate to describe Jesus as one deeply ingrained in a tradition of Torah, of Torah, of the law of Moses, a story that is built on rigorous discussion and argumentation. It would be more accurate to describe him as someone shaped in the middle of a large communal argument between a character that's at the edge, we haven't met yet, called the Sadducees, who believe on, an inerr on a literal interpretation of the law, and Pharisees who believe in a more liberal interpretation of the law. It'd be more accurate to describe him as someone who was frustrated with the inability of his faith community to speak to the realities of the time, of the invasions and the occupations and the economic injustice it would be more accurate to describe him that way. Let's turn our attention to the Pharisees then. If that's who Jesus is, then who are these Pharisees? What are we concealing about them? Well, the fact is that the Pharisees were not legalistic or rigid at all. They were not literal readers of the law. They were a political and thought movement advocating for a, literal, for a liberal and inclusive reading of the law 
committed to rigorous discourse and engagement, argumentation, that was aimed at sharpening everyone's analysis, everyone's understanding of the law, because they believe that everyone should have access, that everyone should participate, not just the rabbinical authorities. The Pharisees also advocated that the law that came down through Moses, the Mosaic law, those first five books of the Christian Bible, if you think about it, or the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, more accurately, uh, that those laws needed to impact every aspect of everyday life. Meaning you needed to do those things on your everyday life, from cleanliness, to prayer, to how you treated people, to how you pay alms. That was not theoretical. It needed to be made active. So, one has to ask oneself then, why would it, why, why, why is this person performing this prayer in the way that they are praying it, given this context? Why are they being so boastful? Why are they being so on your face about it? What's really going on? Last character, the tax collector. Tax collectors were despised. They're the villains of the story. They were aligned with Rome. They unjustly charged fees upon the taxes that were already unjustly. They are like the IRS plus. <laughs> they were predatory capitalists that amassed enormous wealth on the backs of the Jewish people. So we have to ask ourselves, then why are they being presented as the people we should be emulating? As opposed to the Pharisees who seem way more aligned with Jesus than the tax collector is. So if you recall, the third of the stories are resistance stories. These are the stories, as a reminder, that... that tell us there are different ways of doing things. There are different ways of resistance. And so I want to tell you about one of the things that seminary taught me. Seminary taught me many things, some of which are useful, like this one, many of which are not. (laughs) And one of the most useful things I learned in seminary is something called a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's a big word. I'm going to tell you what it means. Hermeneutic means a way of interpretation. And so I learned in seminary, thanks to the work of liberation theology and theologians of the 1970s and 80s in Latin America and the Caribbean, that one needed to bring a lens of suspicion to the historical ways that the Bible had been interpreted. That we were not always as Christians necessarily committed to justice, so we needed to really interrogate some of the practices of interpretation. And so, if I were to apply a hermeneutic of suspicion to these texts, I would have to ask a few questions, right? I would have to ask, why is Luke so invested in having us mistrust the Pharisee? Someone that for all intended purposes was deeply aligned with the tradition of Jesus. Someone 
that some could argue represent Jesus more, more effectively and accurately than the tax collector. A hermeneutic of suspicion would ask us to ask, what is the Pharisee concealing? What pressures are they experiencing as they push against and challenge rigid interpretations of scripture, reading re, like very rigid interpretations of law that exclude others. What are they reacting to? A hermeneutic of suspicion would ask us, what exactly is this aid to the Roman Empire, this tax collector repenting over? Because we are not told. We are told he is repentant, but we are not told for what. Who did they get hurt? Who do they cause to experience harm? How did their collaboration contribute to something they were not expecting? Why don't we know that? I, by the way, don't intend to answer all of these questions. That's like for someone to do a dissertation on. But I asked them to occupy our imagination. I asked them to disrupt and disturb the easy interpretation of these six verses. Because if we don't, the verses justify the stock stories we carry. The stock stories we tell about how our behaviors are better than their behaviors. How we have figured it out and they haven't figured it out. So what remains is to consider then what is emerging. As a pathway to the last set of stories, I want to do a little bit of a congregational survey. So if you are online, you are included in the survey, so you can raise your hand in your own house. So let me ask a question, and I really do want us to raise our hands hands if you are able. When you read the story the gospel read the first time and you heard the, the prayer of the, of the Pharisee, did you think to yourself, that's me? Like if you totally saw yourself reflected in that boastful, arrogant, self-centered prayer. And let's be honest, raise your hand. Don't be shy, you can raise it. Just me, okay, that's, oh yeah, and my friends back there, thank you. Appreciate, I brought my own chorus of hands just in case this exercise failed. Well, I don't know, I'm gonna thank you, thank you for raising your hand. I have to be honest, when I read the scripture, I was like, yes, that's me right there. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. It's really easy to be the Pharisee there. Right, like, I just have to turn on the radio, open the television, and then I am like, I am not only better than them, my prayers are better than them, my theology is better than them, my Jesus is better than them. I am just better than them. Shall we give you the evidence? I mean, I like it for the record, to be better than them. I like to be more faithful, more informed. That's why I listen to NPR. It's why my dogs listen to NPR. Because even my animals are more informed than their animals. 
Let me ask you another question. See if you will play along with me one more time. How many of you saw yourselves in a tax collector? Someone deeply repentant, not quite sure that grace is available and possible, seeking mercy for a transgression you can name or don't want to name or don't know how to name, feeling disconnected and far off. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here also. See, I certainly identify with this character as well because, I mean, I have a permanently filled, ready-to-order cart on my Amazon application at all times. Most nights, I relax by shopping, moving things into my cart. I look at my retirement portfolio And I say to myself, really, we should stop extracting from the earth, but fossil fuels are in. And, you know, I'm 50 or almost 50. I got to retire in about 20 years. I need this money to grow. I got no children. My dogs will certainly not support me at the level at which I support them. (laughs) I'm a voter. I don't always vote for things that lead to the flourishing of every person because they'll be costly to me. See, I I identify with the unknown, the unnamed transgression, the one that silently eats at us. It occurred to me as I was thinking about this that we live in a world that is not that different from the world of Luke's Jesus. Like the presumed original audience of this gospel, we live at the heart of an empire. At a time where competing claims for what are the legitimate ways of being and living are being contested. Like the context of the gospel, the religious authorities are battling it out. They're either totally agreeing with the empire... They're positioning themselves somewhere in the middle, passively accepting, passively resisting, not wanting to lose the money that they need to run the building. Or in abject confrontational resistance against it. We too are sorting out the messaging of the empire trying to discern what seeks to manipulate and co-opt our faith practice to transform it into a weapon for oppression and empire building as opposed to seek our liberation. And we also live in a world where efforts to resist oppressive forces can replicate the behaviors and tactics being rejected and denounced in this gospel. We, too, can engage in ways of resistance that are excluding, disposing, and diminishing of those who are not like us. Maybe maybe the story that emerges is that we are both the Pharisee and the tax collector. That if we are really honest, we live in a world that has conditioned us to animate ways of being, ways of valuing, ways of thinking 
that lead to both of these things being uncritically animated. And because they are uncritically animated, it sets us in a very dangerous path. A path to believe that we must distance ourselves from them. From those folks. From the less evolved, the less informed. Both boasting our betterness and hiding our complicities with oppression allow us to allow the thing that actually is a threat to remain unchallenged. It's what allows us to remain silent in the face of white supremacy, of Christian nationalism, of capitalism, of militarism, of U.S. exceptionalism, of colonialism. It's what makes it rather difficult to be spaces that, rest, that restore and repair, to be places where people want to belong, where people want to join. I would argue that what is most concealed in this morning's text, what requires resistance, is a dangerous dualism that Luke introduces in order to assure his audience that they are okay, that they are the legitimate stream in the story of God and God's people. In the setting of the contrast, Jesus opens the door to that proposition, that dangerous proposition, that separating from them is part of what equips us to gain access to the kingdom of God that is always breaking open among us. This was a troubling proposition then, and it is a troubling proposition today. Its presence in the gospel stands as a reminder for us to be wary of the stuck stales that conceal the drive to exclude and dispose, as opposed to expand the margin of transformative liberation and grace. It does not encapsulate the breadth of Jesus' ministry, one much more distinguished by its concern with power by its desire to extend God's grace to all people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.